Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. On the back side of your bulletin, I have an outline for the message today. So we get into the book of Ecclesiastes. Titled this message, The Big Idea and the Plan of Ecclesiastes. Last week, we looked at verse 1. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon. Why that's important to understand that, to properly handle God's word. Today, we have an introduction, that his introduction. As we come to this passage, I would like to individually address every person in this uh, room today. And you might say, oh, we're naming names. No, I'm not going to do that. I'll just go by age groups. So first of all, young people. Young people. You might say, who classifies as young people? I'll leave that up to you. You're at the beginning of life. And you kind of have wonders. What's going to happen? You have anticipations. Things that you're looking forward to. You have plans. And things look, on the one hand, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm really excited. I remember, even though I'm, well, 52, I'll let you classify where I land in the age group. I remember being 17, 18. I remember being 15 and wanting my driver's license really bad. I remember being 10. Middle-aged folks. And again, I'll let you classify yourselves however you want to fall there. Middle-aged. You're going through life. You work. You pay the bills. There's things that you enjoy. There's hobbies that you have. There's work that you do. But there's struggles too, aren't there? The glowing thoughts that you had when you were young, they've kind of, your eyes have been open to, you know what? There's some things that you have to deal with with life, and you just have to keep on working. Young people, middle-aged, older folks. Again, older folks, I'll let you figure that one out, because I definitely don't want to be on the wrong side there. Older folks, you're near the end of life, as it were. And you might ask yourself, so what did I do with my life? What have I done? Does anyone know? Solomon introduces this book in verses 2 to 11 with a poem. Remember last week I taught you a word, if you hadn't heard it before, of different classifications of literature. The word was genre, G-E-N-R-E. Poetry is a genre, one of many that Solomon uses in getting his point across in this book. He starts with this poem, and he starts off by giving us the big idea, what this book is all about, the subject matter, the theme, the thesis, if you will. And he also tells us in this poem his plan for the book, how he's going to go about it. Solomon, we need to remember, is not viewing life here from the standpoint of a godly, righteous Christian perspective. Solomon, at this point, is viewing life from the standpoint of an unbeliever who's trying to make sense of life in a sin-cursed world. Look at the top of your bulletin there. The main thing I want you to learn from this is that trying to make sense of life Apart from Christ, you might want to underline that just so you get that. Trying to make sense of life 
apart from Christ will always be a baffling, impossible ministry. Mystery. If you don't Christ, if you don't know Christ, number one, the first point here, verse two and three. If you don't know Christ, life will life will never make sense to you. It will always be a mystery. That's the word for that blank there. If you don't know Christ, when you try to make sense of life, whether you're young, middle aged, or older, life will always ultimately be a mystery to you. Verses two and three not only introduce the poem, they introduce the entire book. Verse 2 is the, number one, the big idea of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon's basically saying, here's my summary of this book that I'm writing right now. When sinful, limited man tries to grasp and make sense of life in a sin-cursed world, his conclusion will always be this. It is an impossible, frustrating puzzle that I cannot solve. He starts the book with this, verse 2. You could also write down chapter 12, verse 8. He says the exact same thing. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he starts the book with this thesis, this big idea, and he ends it. They're kind of like bookends. They're kind of like bookends. Framing and defining everything in between. He is helping us see what happens when you try to make sense of life apart from knowing Jesus Christ, apart from saving faith in the Lord. The word here that's translated vanities, uh, since I taught you a new word, I'll treat, teach you the Hebrew word here. This might be fun. I'm not going to write it in Hebrew though for you. That would be, well, a frustrating mystery and puzzle because you don't know Hebrew. It's translated havel. You might say, no, pastor, it's translated havel. The B is kind of soft, okay? It's translated havel, okay? The idea of havel, if you were to use it in uh, a literal, if I can use that expression, a literal way, it's wind or breath. I want you all to try to do an experiment with me. Is anybody here not breathing right now? Everybody's breathing, right? Okay, now, are you ready? I want you to catch your breath. And we automatically think, <coughs> no, like that. I want you to physically try to catch it, okay? How successful will you be at catching your breath? It's just going to go what? Right out of your fingers. So the word here used in Ecclesiastes is not talking about actual breath and actual wind. He's using it in kind of a figurative way. What if you spent your life trying to catch wind? Would that be frustrating? Would that be impossible? That's the point he's making here. When you try to make sense of life apart from Christ, apart from knowing the Lord, it's like trying to catch the wind. In fact, he will often put these expressions together. Vanity of vanity, and he will talk about also, uh, it's like grasping for wind. It's trying to hold the wind in your hand. Some other words that can help us understand this word are conundrum. 
Or, this is a real head-scratcher. It's a puzzle. It's baffling. It's inexplicable. It's not only not understood, but it's beyond our understanding. But there's something else I want you to see here in verse 2. He repeats it. Vanity of vanities. And he does that to emphasize it. This is a way of speaking in Hebrew to emphasize something. Give you three examples from the Old Testament scriptures. In 1 Kings, I think it's 8, it talks about the sky of skies. And what's meant by that is the highest of the skies. In Hebrew worship, they had their temple, and their temple was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Do you remember what they called that place? The Holy of Holies. In other words, that is the most holy place. What book are we looking at right now? What's the next book? And he talked, and he starts out, he says it calls it the Song of Songs. In other words, the idea there, it is the best song. So this is a way of expressing importance and emphasis here. It is something that is impossible to grasp. Life's meaning and purpose apart from knowing the Lord. Unbelievers will never be able to correctly grasp the significance of all the different aspects and activities of life. Never. It'll be a frustrating puzzle. A mystery. Uh, the word I've used a few times is enigma, but that's not a word we use often, is it? So I'm going to use more often than not mystery, because that'll help you get it, okay? Verse 3. So verse 2 is kind of the, the big idea or the theme or the, 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 the thesis of the book. Verse 3 tells us the plan for Ecclesiastes. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? It's like Solomon's doing this. Okay, that's quite a way to start a book. Verse 2 is quite a way to start a book. This is the greatest of all mysteries that no one can solve on their own. Oh, you've got my attention. Now with verse 3, he addresses the plan by getting our attention even more, by drawing us into it. He doesn't make a statement here, does he? He asks a question. He asks a question that doesn't expect an answer. Since we're learning... English uh, um, grammar. This is called a rhetorical question. Let me give you some examples of, a rhetor of rhetorical questions. Who knows? Are you kidding me? Who's to say? And why bother? Have you ever asked those questions and then somebody tries to answer you? And you say, no, 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 no. I don't want you to answer me. I just want you to sympathize with me. I want you to see the puzzlement of this all. He wants you to think. He's asking a rhetorical question. What advantage is it? What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? He doesn't want you to answer. He wants you to think. Asking questions to make people think. This is a little rabbit trail. Asking questions to make people think is a great way to teach. A great way to teach. A great way to teach unbelievers the gospel. A great way to teach believers different aspects of Christian living or truth. 
A great way I have found that my kids haven't always thought so of helping them in homeschooling and things like that. Dad, I just want the answer. My job isn't to give you the answers. My job is to teach you how to find the answers. Dad, what does this word mean? I hand them the dictionary. I don't want that. Just tell me. You need to learn. That's what Solomon wants here. What profit has a man from all his labor? Profit. Here he's using uh, financial kind of ideas. Think of about a balance sheet. Think about a balance sheet, which reminds me, we're overdue or on time for a financial report, which reminds me that I haven't scanned receipts so that our treasurer can do the balance sheet, so I better do that, right? A balance sheet, uh-oh, I'm not a financial guy. You're looking at what your assets are, or what your liabilities, and you're looking at the bottom line. That's the idea. What's the bottom line? Some other expressions to help you. At the end of the day, that's an expression we use to talk about ultimate advantage or profit. At the end of the day, or we might say, when everything is said and done, you're getting to the main point. When everything is said and done, at the end of the day, or what's the bottom line in everything that human beings do? That's what he's talking about. That's what he's involved when he says all his labor. He is talking about, yeah, your career, but he's not just, he's not just talking about that. He is including everything you do. Things you love to do, your hobbies, your work, and your family. Everything. What advantage? What's the ultimate? What's the bottom line? How does it all matter? He helps us more and says, in which he toils under the sun. That is where people do things. And you might say, duh. That is where people do things, under the sun. The focus here is on this life. That's what he's talking about. From the time you were born to the time you die, under the sun, life right now. So before we move on to the next point, I want you to remember a couple things that we need to see here. We need to remember that God made man to rule the earth, Genesis 1 and 2. How well is that going? It's really hard. Why? Because sin entered the world. And after Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do to the earth? He cursed it and he caused thorns and thistles to rise up. He cursed the world because of Adam's sin. So sinners living in a sin-cursed world will always have a limited perspective. They'll always be frustrated. They'll always be in the dark about ultimate meaning and purpose. That's what Solomon is saying in verse 3. You'll always be in the dark when you're without the Lord when it comes to ultimate meaning and purpose in all of life. So he's given these, this big idea, this plan for the book, verses 2 and 3. Um, it's an insolvable mystery. So now he's going to go to verses 4 to 11, and he's going to support what he just said. Okay, I made, I made this basic idea. I'm going to give you supporting documentation. I'm going to give proof of that. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, if you're not saved, 
if your sins haven't been washed away, life will never make sense to you. It'll never make sense to you because, number two, it'll never make sense to you because life just keeps on going. Life just keeps on going. Verses four to eight. We're going to see here there's a repetitiveness about it. And when things repeat, I mean, the first couple times we think, hey, that's pretty cool. But after a while, it gets monotonous. And when we think about monotonous, we don't think exciting. We think nothing new about that. While there's a monotony to it, there's always something happening. These are the two things we're going to see in verses 4 to 8. There's regularity, but there's always something happening here. Number one, life keeps on going, but creation never changes. Verse four, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Generation here is talking about people who live in a particular time. Every generation. Every generation of people. All over again, wrestles with the meaning of life. It is nothing new. Why am I here? Every human being in every generation has asked. Young people, middle-aged people, aged people. Every time someone's born, they're born sinners. They don't, have, they don't have life. They don't have spiritual light. They're self-centered. They live for gratification. They want fulfillment. But what do, what do we read here? The earth abides forever. The point is this. People come and go. People come and go, but the earth remains. Something that's always happening, people come and go, but yet it's a monotonous thing. Solomon isn't satisfied with this general statement, though, of the earth abides forever. He wants to get some specific things. So he shows, number two, how nature just keeps on going, verses 5 to 7. The sun also rises and the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. We'll stop there. The earth doesn't change. There's the monotony. There's endless activity. There's something always happening. Like what? The sun, verse 5. Once it finishes... Solomon puts it in kind of a poetic way. It hurries back to the starting line. It's like running a marathon on a track. You're going around and around and around. Remember, folks, older folks, when you tried that? Remember watching the gerbil going round and round? Then you have the wind. It's always whirling, always twirling. And then you have the rivers in verse 7. They're always streaming, but they are never filling the sea. It is never full. And he stops with that with a reason. Ultimately, there's no, there's seemingly no ultimate advantage or profit. The river, the water keeps going in, but it's never full. What's the ultimate advantage? What's the profit? Just as nature keeps on going, number three, Man's efforts just keep on going. Verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear 
filled with hearing. Nature's never-ending cycle never seemed to come to a climax. Let's try it, okay? Tomorrow morning, this is going to be a lot easier than June or July. Why? Sunrise is around, let me think now, 6.50 a.m. It's nearing 7 a.m. Sunset is around 7.45 or 7.30, 7.30. So this is going to be a lot easier for you than June or July when the sun rose at, you know, dark 30 and sets really late. Want you to, with anticipation, get up and watch the sunrise tomorrow. Watch the sun go around and then watch the sun set. And I want you to think, yes, it accomplished its race. It'll never have to run that race again. And what's going to happen the next day? It's going to rise again. Let's try it with the wind. The wind just blew. Yes, it accomplished its purpose. What's going to happen again? The winds are going to blow again. Let's go to the Grand River. Watch it empty into Lake Erie. Yes, the rivers have done their job. The lake is full. But what do the rivers continue to do? The water evaporates. The water rains, fills the streams, and it continues its cycle all over again. Mankind will never be able to get to the point, this is the, the point of verse 8, mankind will never be able to give a thoroughgoing assessment of everything. He will never be able to say on his own, as an unbeliever, that's important to recognize, on his own, as an unbeliever, he will never give the correct, thoroughgoing assessment of all of life. And if you don't know Christ, life will never make sense to you because life just keeps on going. But also, verses 9 to 11, number 3, there's nothing new in history. There's nothing new in history. How do people find meaning for their lives? When I was in seminary, um, I had a, a number of balls, my graduate work, I had a number of balls I was trying to juggle, and no, I cannot juggle. But I had work, I had four kids, I had seminary uh, graduate classes. In these graduate classes, I would have like a thousand pages of reading to do per class, I'd have a 20-page paper to write, there'd be quizzes and tests uh, for a class that meant once or twice a week. So there's a lot of work that I had to do. How do I... You know, keep all. So I, I started. I started gaining some help with some pro productivity. Now this is before you had, you know, your phones with things like that. I used a certain uh, outlook that really helped me. What matters most? Get the first things in line. And how do I how do I put all these things together? This person who put this together, he was from an unbelieving perspective. I took the principles and applied it as a Christian. He began with this. You need to determine what matters most to you. And then what are your goals in life? And then your daily tasks have to work to accomplish your goal so you can accomplish your meaning in life. An unbeliever left to themselves will always get the meaning of life wrong. Because it'll always be either on me or someone else. As a Christian, this one's easy. 
Why do you live? To glorify God. To lift up Jesus Christ. How do I do that? That's easy too. He's told us in the scripture. He's told us how to do that in the Bible. Some of the daily things, number three, okay, those help me accomplish these things. But unbelievers trying to find meaning of life, trying to find significance of life, something worthwhile and lasting, the fact is, number one, that what happened in the past, it'll be repeated in the future, verses 9 to 10. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. When someone says he's seen something new, he is simply saying he's never seen it before. It was always there. And you might say, no, that's not true. Pastor, you're a diabetic. They didn't have a cure for diabetes until the 1920s when they discovered insulin. And I say, time out. They discovered what? Insulin. Had insulin always existed? Yep. Always had. Human beings have it. My body doesn't make it anymore. So they accomplished it by taking, well, pig insulin. Putting it into my body. Now, thankfully, it's not pig insulin now. They make better insulin than that. It's not new. It is not new. It was always there. And this is true, number two, for people also. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Things that seem to be new, things seem to be new because we either didn't know about it or they've been forgotten in the past. There's no remembrance of former things. We just don't remember. But that doesn't mean it's truly new. This is showing the struggle of the unbeliever in trying to find meaning in life. He thinks this is new, but the fact is it's not. There is God and everything else. And this everything else God sustains. He keeps it going. And we read about that in verses eight and fo- or 5 and following. Another thing you could do to illustrate this. There are some wonderful cemeteries around here. And you might say, you truly are off your rocker. I like cemeteries. I like to go to read the epitaphs. There's some really old ones here. There's some ones that are still in use that have people who lived in the 1700s and died in the 1800s. If you really want to go on an expedition, uh, go down to the... The stop, the corner down here, 534 and uh, 86. And instead of going up 86, go up Noble Road. Go straight. As you're going up straight, you go about a mile or so, you'll see a road that you can turn right on. Don't turn down that one. Turn immediately to the left on a road that's about hidden. It's a dirt road. It's called Pioneer Road. Uh, you go down that road a couple hills, you got to be watching. Be watching as you're headed there. You're headed west on Pioneer Road. You're going to see, on as you come to a little valley, there's a little creek that runs there. You're going to see a bridge. See a tiny little sign that says Pioneer Cemetery. you got to get out of your car. You're going to have to walk up a hill. And at the top of that hill is Pioneer Cemetery. There's only a couple dozen people who are buried up there. Revolutionary War veterans. 
These were the pioneers of Windsor Township. And on a number of those gravestones, it talks about how they came over from Connecticut and they moved out here. At one time, this area was called the Connecticut Western Reserve. And so it's no surprise that they moved out here. But as you go to those old cemeteries and you see people who lived, well, for example, 1743 to 1833. How many years is that? 80 years. About 80 years. We just read the name. Did I get the right? Was it 80? 90 years? 90 years. That's why I'm not the treasurer. <laughs> or the genealogical guru. Live 90 years. All we see is the name and the dates. Date of birth, date of death. And we just move on to the next one. Can't they give us some kind of epitaph? You know, something cool? And there are some cool epitaphs up there. I want you to think about what's happened. Because someday, should Jesus tarry, you will have a tombstone, won't you? And it'll read your name, your date of birth, and your date of death. And that's it. And on those stones, 1743 to 1833, what happened during those 90-some years? That individual had dreams and hopes. They fell in love. They got married, had kids. Their parents died. They had struggles. They had joys. There were political things that they couldn't figure out. Surprise. They got sick and they died. But all we see is 1733 to 1843 or whatever the dates I said. That's all we see. And that's all we know. Let's bring this to home here. We have a number of individuals in our church who've retired. You work 40, 50, maybe 60 years. Those years that you work, uh, that you did, you know what Solomon says here? It's all going to be forgotten soon if it hasn't been already. Isn't that encouraging? Those great things that you accomplished? Forgotten. Gone. Young people, i got some encouraging news for you. Some interesting factoids that will be a real help. Are you ready? Ready, young people? You're about to spend the next 50 or so years doing things that everybody has already done. Isn't this encouraging? Wait, there's more. After a few years of your retirement or death, nobody's going to remember anything that you did. Man, I don't like Pastor Greenfield. I didn't say it. Solomon said it. The old people that are here right now, guess what? At one time, they were just like you, young person. They looked at old people and said, boy, I hope I'm never like that. I'll never make that mistake. And guess what's going to happen to you, young person? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have fun. You're going to have grief. And you're going to get old. And it won't be long where you are where they are. Aren't you excited about life, young people? Oh, man. Look at the bottom of your sheet here. 
when you do know Christ, when you reverently trust Him, when you exclusively love, worship, and serve Him, number one, you will have a right view of this world. You will have a right view of this world. You will see it as God's creation. Yes, scarred by sin and groaning, but you will know that God made a promise to Noah in Genesis 8.22. There will be seed time and harvest. The seasons will come and go and it will happen because God maintains it. When you know Christ, you're going to know this isn't just a worthless, endless, um, pointless cycle. God is doing that. That changes your outlook completely. You're going to know God is a God of providence. He works all things to accomplish His purposes and ends. And you're going to know there is a purpose. That's with the Lord. Number two, when you know Christ, you will have a right approach to living in this world. You have a right approach to living in this world. Not a despondent, why bother? Not a, boy, what am I supposed to do? Or it's a complete waste. You're going to have a right approach to living. Live like Christ. Live for Christ in your day-to-day life. Doesn't matter where you're at, young person, middle aged, or older person, you glorify the Lord where you're at in life. Number three, when you know Christ, you will have a right understanding of time and eternity. You'll have a right understanding of time and eternity. Your life is not limited to X number of years, and then that's it. Your life has eternal significance when you live for Christ. What's the first hymn we sang today? Remember? Crown him with many crowns. And my brother prayed in our opening prayer, when you live faithfully to the Lord, the Lord will reward us with what? Crowns. When you live faithfully for Christ in a sin-cursed world, He'll reward you with crowns. And what will we do with those crowns? We'll cast them at the Lord Jesus' feet. That's meaning. That's significance. That's purpose. When you live for Christ, your life does have meaning. It does have significance. It does have purpose. Even in the mundane. Even in the repetitive. Even in the cyclical things. Because you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.